Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, Let me pray for us before we start. Father, you know uh, where each of us is this morning, in this moment. You know that for many of us, uh, this week has been a difficult week as we have listened in on the story that is occupying our national common life. You know that some of us have listened in to this story that's happening in our own city, this trial that will end soon, that will likely bring distress no matter how it ends. Father, these things uh, we are living in and moving in, we're hearing and talking about these things, and they bring a certain anxiety, even a certain dread. And Father, you know that there are those of us here this morning who wish we even had the leisure to think about things outside of the walls of our own home, who are dealing with very difficult, very troublesome things just in our own family or relationships or with our own selves, we are struggling. You know, those of us here who have faith and those of us here who don't, those of us who feel close to you, those of us who feel far from you, Father, what we ask is that you would meet every single one of us here this morning in the places where we are, that you would, again, lift us up, lift our heads up, that you would show us the grace of Jesus, his love for people like us again, and you would change us by it. And we ask it in his name. Amen. We have uh, been reading Paul's letter to the Galatian church together and uh, for the last three weeks. And for the last two of those three weeks, we've been reading uh, about Paul's own life. Uh, he has told his friends about the shape of his life. Uh, about his violent, ugly, nationalistic past, uh, about the day that his whole life, uh, unbidden, was turned upside down by the grace of the risen Jesus, and about this new vocation, this new calling, this new way to live that Jesus gave him on that day. And if you've been with us, you know that Paul has not been talking about himself because he needed some filler on the front end of this letter. He has been talking about himself because despite all of his strenuous early efforts in his life, his life now was an example of the kind of unhinged freedom that he desperately wants for his friends. The kind of freedom that faith in Jesus and nothing else leads to. So this morning uh, he finishes telling them his story, and the ending is a bit of a doozy, so I will read it for us now. I'm going to read Galatians 2, verses 11 through 21. You can follow along uh, in a Bible or in the order of worship where it's printed, or you can just listen as I read from Galatians 2. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. 
But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Well, uh, seven days ago, last Sunday evening, um, I got an email that started like this. We've been learning the routines and expectations of first grade together. Uh, Back in May this year, I got an email with the subject line, Hot Tub, And this is how that email started. Aaron, I started up my hot tub for the spring, and it was working great until I smelled something. I took off the faceplate, and the circuit board had melted. In June of this year, I got an email that said, Aaron, as a returning student, you're eligible once again for the Wichita Falls Education Scholarship. Just to clarify, I do not have a first grader. Uh, I do not fix hot tubs or sell things to fix hot tubs, and I am not a student at any institution in Wichita Falls. These emails are not spam. (laughs) They are real people trying to communicate with a real person. I don't know why, but I think I get a lot of these, more than the usual amount of these kinds of emails. Maybe it's because of the simplicity of my personal email address, I don't know, but it happens frequently. More than a dozen times since the beginning of this year, I've gotten an email that was intended for someone else. For many, many years, I would get papers sent to me or pleas for extensions for papers from students who thought that I was their poetry professor. (laughs) There is one family who, since 2015, has consistently included me in their vacation planning emails. (laughs) I have told them many times, they sound great, but I don't want to go to Rome with them. I always feel this obligation to reply, to let each of these people know that uh, I'm not the Aaron Baker that they think that I am, or to remind them, I'm, I'm not the Aaron Baker that you think I am. And about half the time, This leads to gracious and usually heartfelt thanks. The the first grade teacher wrote me back and thanked me, the hot tub guy, and I got into kind of a complicated discussion that I can't really repeat here. The, The Wichita Falls scholarship guy responded, and this is how he responded to me. He said, ha, 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 thanks for letting me know. My daughter, and 
he names his daughter to me in the email. My daughter dated him for a while, and it would have really confused our family if it had worked out. I have no idea what that means or what that has to do with the scholarship. None. But I do know that this guy was really grateful to know that I was not who he thought I was. And I bring this up because identity, both false and true, is at the heart of that part of the letter that we just read together. First, there is the false identity, the play acting, the hypocrisy, the pretending to be someone that we are not. And then there is the true identity, which Paul mysteriously describes like this. It's no longer I who live, but Christ Jesus who lives in me. Paul wants his friends in that church, and he wants you and me to continually know and to learn and to live out of our true identity as followers of Jesus, because when we do, it leads us into genuine human freedom. So he begins by telling his friends about this time when Peter, who he calls by his Aramaic name Cephas, came to visit him in Antioch. Now this isn't the first time that we have heard about Peter uh, in Paul's telling of his own story. Paul's already told us twice before that he has gone to see Peter in Jerusalem and that the last time that he saw Peter in Jerusalem, Peter gave him the right hand of fellowship and they came to a sort of agreement together that Paul would mainly work with non-Jewish people and Peter and the rest of the apostles in Jerusalem would work mainly with Jewish people. But here, Peter is the one who's made the trip away from Jerusalem, almost 300 miles to Antioch. It's probably the third largest city on the eastern edge of the Roman Empire. It also happened to be the place where the word Christian was coined to refer to people who followed Jesus. Now, we don't know why Peter was there with Paul, but we can assume that they were working together as Paul was establishing the church there. And the way that Paul describes Peter's way of being there is a little bit shocking and a lot beautiful. This is, this is what Paul says. Peter was eating with the Gentiles. Now that, that may not seem like a big deal to us now, but it was a huge deal for Christians in the first century. It was a huge deal for Peter because he had spent his entire life scrupulously avoiding eating with people who were not Jewish. And now he is doing just that. Eating with someone communicated a powerful bond with that person, a, a sort of communion with that person. We know how this worked out in Jesus' life. Most of the disagreements that he had with religious people in his day were over the fact that he talked with and hung out and touched and ate with people that they would not be caught dead with. And then as we heard in the gospel lesson this morning, Jesus taught a parable, and you could draw a straight line from that parable to that table that Peter is sitting at in Antioch. In that parable, Mark tells us that Jesus declared all foods clean. Now that was revolutionary. And I don't, I don't really think that Peter in that moment had sorted out all of the details of that, but the seeds were there. 
And then after Jesus' resurrection, in the earliest days of the church, God gives Peter this vision that's clear and it's unambiguous. And you can read about it later in Acts 10. And after this vision, this is what Peter says. He says, God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Nobody. So that's why I say it's a little shocking. It's shocking because Peter has come around. He had given up this thing that had been important, that had been formative in his life as far back as he could remember. But it's a lot beautiful. Because old Peter sitting at that table in Antioch is a clear pointer to the fact that the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus has torn down walls that had carved people up and divided people for millennia. The gospel has been doing that ever since. It is beautiful. But all of that beauty ends in an instant. Certain men, Paul says, had arrived from Jerusalem. James had sent them. We don't know for sure who they were or even why they had come, and that's not the point. The point is that when Peter saw them, he drew back and he separated himself from the people that he had been eating with. I mean, this this is Peter. This is the rock. This is the one on whom Jesus said he will build the church. And he sees a couple guys from headquarters, and he flips out. And Paul says he did it because he was afraid. And if you know the contours of Peter's life, you know this this is a thing for him. Caving under fear. He's walking along just fine. He sees the waves. He sinks. He hears the girl question him. Weren't you with him? He sinks. And it isn't just Peter who gets caught up in this hypocrisy. That's, that's the painful part of this moment. Paul said that all of the other Jewish believers, even Barnabas, Paul's co-worker, his friend, Even Barnabas is taken up in this hypocrisy, and they separate. They are separate from the people that they had formerly been eating with. They're led astray. And a once joyfully united church became a divided church over race and ethnicity. It is ugly. And church, this is the ecology of sin. Peter gives in to fear. It is Peter who does it. But it is not only Peter who is affected by his fall. Everyone else is too. Because the effects of sin aren't tied to the moment in which it's committed. The effects of sin are not limited to that moment in time or to those people around whom it was committed or done. Scripture teaches us that sin has an ecology that ripples out from that place that tears into the goodness and into the justice and into the peace of the created order, that tears into the human beings who live in the created order. This week in our national life has been remarkably violent in this way, in almost every direction that we look. 
right and left and center and everywhere in between, in media of all sorts, in the academy, in the church, in popular culture, everywhere. And church, we need to be mindful of this ecology of sin, particularly in this moment, as it reaches out to tear at those among us who have been victims of sexual abuse. Because this, this is what's been happening over the last few days. Women have listened in, and they've had to revisit their own stories of abuse, their own experiences of fear and helplessness, their own feelings of anger and shame and confusion. And church, we have to be a people, we have to be a people filled with compassion and grace for our sisters and for our brothers who have been and who are experiencing these traumas again. We all wait. We all wait, says Paul in another one of his letters, for the redemption of our bodies. That's one of the things that Jesus is doing in this world. And while we wait, Paul says, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And one of the ways that the Spirit helps us in our weakness is through the church, through each other, through his people. As we put aside anger, as we put aside self-righteousness, as we put aside all of the thin, brittle, shallow moralities that our culture wants us to try on for size and make ourselves safe, peaceable, calm harbors of rest for victims of abuse in the chaos of their storm. Church, this is who we were made to be. Another way to say that is we live out of our true identity rather than fearfully living out of a false one. That's the place to which Paul is headed in this story, but before he gets there, he wants to make one thing really clear, just in case it, it, there could be any confusion. This is what Paul says. I oppose Peter to his face because he stood condemned. When I saw that his conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, listen to this. Paul is not saying that Peter was being rude or ill-mannered or obtuse. He's not saying eh, he probably could have made a better decision in that moment. Paul is saying that Peter was walking away from Jesus and what Jesus had done for him. It's hypocrisy, Peter. And you know better. Now, verses 15 through 21 in this passage read like the rest of what Paul said to Peter that day, like the conversation continued. And the people who write academically about these sorts of things are really divided about it. Is this what Paul said to Peter in that moment, or is this a theological summary of what he would have said if he could have? Is this what he would have said if he had enough nerve? There aren't any quotation marks in the original language, so we can't really know. And Paul, for his part, isn't being super clear about it. 
The point is that what Paul writes here connects the story that he has been telling about himself to the story of his friends in that little church. In some ways, this is the heart of the letter. It carries the full force of all that he wants to say to them. And I think we should hear it as Paul speaking to Peter, winding down, maybe, being reunited after that dark, dark day in Antioch. He starts by saying, listen, Peter, we, we ourselves were Jews by birth. We're not Gentile sinners. And that's true. They could, they had to agree about that. They're both Jewish. And that means that they tried to do all the things that they were supposed to do. They tried to eat kosher. They tried to keep the laws as best as they possibly could. We know Paul was scrupulous, zealous about the way he did it. But they could agree on something else too. Paul says in verse 16, and, and, Peter, you and I, we both know that a person is not justified through works of the law. Now that word justified is a word from the law court. It's what a judge would declare about you uh, when you were acquitted or when you were shown to be innocent. You were not guilty. You were not condemned. You were justified. You were righteous. And when Paul uses that word It is always rooted in his belief about who God really is. The first two verses of Psalm 143 are a great example of what this looks like, and I would bet the farm that that's what Paul is alluding to here, Psalm 143. Psalm 143 begins with the psalm writer asking God to hear his prayer, to hear his plea for mercy. It is uh, a prayer of confession. And this is what he asked God. He says, God, please don't enter into judgment with me. Because no living person is righteous before you. It's like the psalm writer knows he's never going to come out clean from the divine law court. He's never going to come out clean. He knows he's not righteous because no one is, which would be depressing and hopeless if that's all the further it went, but it goes further. It's so beautiful. The psalm writer says to God, so in your faithfulness, answer me. In your righteousness, answer me. Maybe, God, you you could find a way to acquit me based on who you are your character, your faithfulness, that would be grace. It is a beautiful prayer. And it's a prayer that points to this other area of agreement between Paul and Peter. Yeah, you know, we know we're not justified by works of the law. And they know and they have agreed together that their justification has come, just like in the prayer in Psalm 143, through God's own faithfulness, through his character. As Paul puts it, a person is justified through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also, you and me, Peter, we've believed in Jesus. (laughs) 
And it's good to be reminded that this is the whole point of this letter. This is the whole reason this letter is being written, because some people had come into Galatia after Paul had founded the church there and had said to the Galatian Christians, young in the faith, hey, you guys have made a good start. You're doing okay as being Christians. It's nice. We like what we see. But in order to really make progress as Christians, in order to really be pleasing to God as Christians, you need to do some more stuff. Specifically, follow some of these ritual aspects of the Old Testament law. Do that, and then you'll be all set. And this is the heart of Paul's reply. It feels like he has said it a hundred different ways already. It couldn't be any more clear. No. No. A person is justified through faith in Jesus Christ, not faith in Jesus and a bunch of other stuff. And I've said this before, and we will keep hearing this again. Knowing and experiencing the grace of Jesus through faith is enough. And it will always be enough to make us into the people that we were created to be. So you can see why Paul tells this story about what happens in Antioch to his friends because it's so similar to what's happening to them. His word to Peter is his word to them and it's his word to us too. You know better. Your identity as God's people did not come because you paved the way for his grace to come. Your identity as God's people did not come to you because you earned it, because you try to be really good, because you're a really nice person, because you work really hard. Your identity as God's people did not come to you because of your ethnicity or what you ate or didn't eat. Our identity as new women and men comes by grace through faith in Jesus. Paul comes at it from another angle in verse 19. He says, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Now, he's going to come back to this later. But he's saying that one of the things that the law does in our life is it makes us realize that we need something more and better than the law. Just try keeping it, he's saying. You know you'll fail by 9 a.m., Because no one comes out clean. And we have that better thing in Jesus who gives us a whole new identity by wrapping our identity up in his. This is how Paul says it. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's how the prayer of Psalm 143 gets answered. That's how God answers our prayers for mercy. That's how God turns back the ecology of sin and deconstructs it and makes new creation happen. Not based on whatever creaky, goofy stuff we might bring to the table, Our prayers for mercy for ourselves in this world are answered based on his character, his love, his goodness, his grace, his faithfulness, his righteousness. Through faith in Jesus, God declares people like you and me righteous. I know. 
I know that's hard to believe. I mean, maybe we can, we can, it's not hard to believe like with our head, like an adage. It's hard to believe in the way that we live. It seems too good to be true, but there it is in front of us, the great and wondrous exchange in black and white. Jesus loved me and he gave himself for me. His life for ours. And that means we're forgiven of our sins and we're given new identities and we're given a new way to live and to love in this world. It is no longer I who live, but it's Jesus himself who is living in me. And church, do you know what you call people who live out of that new identity? You call them free Free to know God more deeply and intimately. Free to know that we are actually loved by God. Free to know that he is our father and to be able to call him that without any hesitation. Free to live lives of love and service in this world. Free to be the people that he has created us to be. Let me pray for us. Father, help us to believe. Not just as some disconnected thing that's floating around there that we've heard our whole life. Help us to believe in the living of our lives, that we would live out of this identity that you have given us in your son who loved us and gave himself for us. Father, help us to believe and to cling to him Help us to do that so that we can then, in turn, in this broken world, in this broken place, with broken, hurting people all around us, so that we can love in the same way that we have been loved by you. Help us to believe. Do this for our good and do this for the good of the broken world around us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.